This is the Coleman Associate Innovation Podcast. Innovation? Yeah, innovation. New, original, and creative. This podcast is designed to challenge the way you think about how healthcare is delivered. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you haven't already done so, please take your seat and fasten your seatbelt. I'm your host, Ryan Jury. We are about to explore practical solutions and hear about how out-of-reach results are obtained. Welcome to this installment of the Coleman Associate Innovation Podcast. I hope that this installment will come at a time where many providers may find themselves pushed into the deep end of telehealth. For the sake of definitions, we're including within the terms telehealth, synchronous video visits, telephone visits, and digital non-face-to-face care through the portal, chat, or email. This is a roundtable interview with four medical doctors about providing telehealth. Some have just started, and some have been providing telehealth services for a few years. Thank you for taking your time during the COVID-19 response to be interviewed for this podcast. As a disclaimer, none of these conversations are meant to provide medical advice or diagnostic advice. It's surely operational and process advice only. Karen, Micheline, Paul, and Pam, do you all mind just taking a quick second and introducing yourself for our listeners? Sure. My name is Karen Suskind. I'm a family practice physician in Boulder, Colorado. Hi, I'm Micheline. I'm a family doctor in Colorado. Um, I am so lucky to be in Colorado with all this social distancing because it's beautiful out here and we can still get away. So thanks for having me on. I'm um, Dr. Paula. I'm a family practitioner in Colorado. I've been practicing for over 20 years. I started in community health and I'm now um, with an HMO. Pam, last but not least, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm a family practitioner. I work in Colorado and I graduated from medical school about 25 years ago. So all of this is disrupting our habits, normalness. What has been the hardest thing to adjust to? There are so many layers to that, but for me, I think the hardest part has been um, my pediatric patients. Um, We have a lot of newborns um, coming through this time of year and um, not being able to easily do weight checks or jaundice checks or vaccinations without thinking long and hard, the risk versus benefit ratio for every single decision. Um, It's a little bit tiring and not to mention very nerve wracking for new, new parents to begin with to have a baby, much less to bring them into this world with so much uncertainty and danger. I'm Shalene, what are your thoughts? Oh, geez. So, I mean, there's so many adjustments right now. I think a lot of healthcare providers know this, you know, with their schedule, where they're going to work and even mixing homeschool into this and all these technology interfaces, the, you know, the virtual care has been just going to mostly virtual has definitely been a challenge. Um, But I would say the hardest adjustment is just knowing a little bit, but not a lot about an illness that's incredibly contagious and and fatal it's humbling uh paula do you mind sharing with us what you're thinking yeah so the the immediate um transition that we made in our office was to start doing primarily phone and video visits and we'd done some phone visits but that was pretty limited to things like following up on depression or Um, you know, very simple things. Um, So we went from a slate of seeing patients to a slate of, you know, 20, 30, however many uh, phone visits a day. 
it really requires you to think outside the box a little bit. How can I help the patient? How can I rule out the serious things? And what are the resources that I have available? Um, so I feel grateful because I feel like we've got decent resources and it, and we're able to uh, almost same time get help from um, specialists and that's useful, but you really have to be willing to not, you're not laying the hands, you're not looking at the patient, you're, you're trusting their descriptions and you know, that's okay. There's a lot more that we can do via telehealth than we have been. I would, and that's been reassuring because most of what I'm doing feels fairly comfortable, but there's certainly a percentage where it doesn't. And then you have to kind of go out on a limb a bit. Pam, uh, lastly, what are your thoughts around the challenges? It, it probably hasn't been as much of a transition for me as it has for other people um, because, because I work for a multi-specialty group they they have meetings for me every day, sometimes twice a day with all the updates. I've got lots of information at my fingertips. And, um, and I've been doing some online chat um, with patients for about three years. And so now I've just shifted and I'm doing more of the chat, less of the face-to-face. -face. But um, yeah. Thanks, everyone. Um... Next question that I wanted to ask all of you was, how are you doing your visits different now over the phone, video, or chat as compared to when you were doing them face-to-face -face in, a, in a normal clinic setting? Absolutely. I was so skeptical that this was going to work at all. And I have been shocked. I'm really surprised how much you can glean from a face-to-face -face visit via a screen. Um, what I found... Can imagine fielding lots and lots of phone calls. It has been much more um, difficult to offer care via telephone than through the video. It gives the patients much more reassurance. And I've um, had this wonderful aspect of being able to try to um, triage someone's abdominal pain. I had them put their heads down on their beds and had them palpate and looked for rebound tenderness and. Um, same thing with sinusitis. I had them palpate their own sinuses and um, someone today had a sty versus preceptal cellulitis and that was a hard one to try to figure out. So I uh, ended up giving her antibiotics. Um, but um, one of the things that I found so surprising a patient was coming um, with this gradual onset of right-sided weakness and I was able to do a partial neurological exam. Wait, over, um, over telehealth? Isn't that fun? No, oh, I mean that's pretty awesome. I mean, I mean, what, yeah. How did, so how did, I, how did it go? So I, well, we made it up. So I had her stand up. <laughs> I had to stand her up, and I had her um, stretch her arms forward, and had her close her eyes. And sure enough, she stumbled backwards, went for a positive Romberg, and then I had her do um, a series of other tests. But one of the tests that also came back positive was the rapid alternating movements of her hands, and one was very fluid, and one was. Uh, and wasn't as fluid. And um, so it ended up getting that brain MRI the next day. And sure enough, she has um, a big lesion um, in her left parietal lobe. So I was able to keep her away from our office. Obviously, right now she's in the hospital getting surgery. But um, up until that point, it was one less point of contact for her. So, you know, there are a lot of skeptics out there. And sometimes we have our own voices. I mean, have you have you ever felt like 
you know, initially when you were going into this, that this wasn't going to work and you were a skeptic yourself? Yeah, this is not how I've been trained. I've been trained to be with the patient in the room. It's a sacred relationship. And it, this felt um, very sterile, which is exactly the point. Um, and it felt uh, incomplete. The, my physical exam is actually ample, able to put a few things in my physical exam. For example, um, coughing is non-productive, occasional, uh, no signs of respiratory distress, things like that. But uh, otherwise, it's blank. And that feels anathema to how I've been trained. Yeah. I mean, this totally disrupts this, you know, normal visit, walk into the room, walk into the right exactly. side of you know, the patient's <laughs> bed. Exactly. Uh, you're kind of taught a certain way. I'm surprised that I'm not more bothered by it. Um, I'm not bothered by it at all. This is what we have. And this is the tools that we have. I'm so glad that we have this capacity because even what, 10 years ago, this would have been more complicated than it has to be. So I'm just grateful for what we've got and do the best we can. So can you maybe just talk to me a little bit about how you're doing this with the physical exam over telehealth? It's just even the positioning of the patient now, they can be lying down in their bed sweating, um, holding shakily or rigoring, holding their their uh, computer up or their screen up in front of me. That gives me a lot of information right there. Um, or I walk in with someone who's worried about shortness of breath and they're just so happy to see me talking full sentences without dyspnea. Um, so those are nice clues to use. I guess it's not too different than when I actually see a patient in the office. Um, but I'm guessing now people just relax more because they're at their home. So I think truthfully, it might be more comfortable for the patient than coming into my office to begin with. Micheline, what's uh, different for you? I, you know, that's a good question. Yeah. Where, you know, I did some virtual and a lot of docs have mixed it in and emails are a big deal, but having mostly virtual, actually a lot of it takes me back to residency where we had to triage all our own patients and manage the, manage the um, inpatients and the OB. And so we had an incentive to, really make sure that we got a good history on the phone and we kept people from coming in because we'd actually have to see them in the ER ourselves. So, so you were <laughs> that the incentive, yeah. yeah. Totally. <laughs> gotcha. So you, you would want to see them over the phone first. Yeah, exactly. And you were the only one, you're holding the pager and all these calls would come in. And yeah, so it kind of takes me back to that. And um, so, you know, you find ways to get a really good HPI. Uh, a lot of providers know that, 80 to 90% of our work is getting a good history. So, and you know, we can do that on the phone. So whenever I get anxious, I, I go back to that place and say, you know, just get that HPI. So quick question, just in terms of the model as a resident, you would get a call and, and you would field these calls in like an after hours type coverage, as opposed to having to have them come into the ER and see them. So you were kind of incentivized to do as much as you could over the telephone I mean, how do you keep these telephone visits from going on and on and on? Yeah, I mean, I, I found that I found that sometimes you do have to just interrupt a person because they don't have those social cues. Even in the video, people are staring at themselves. It's really funny. On the phone, they just babble on. And I think they realize that sometimes too. So just that gentle interruption and, um, you know, with, as much of an empathic voice as I can have and, and, and telling them that, you know, I really care about making sure I understand what's going on. If they don't mind if I interrupt and ask a few questions, that's been, that's been helping the most, I would say, and really getting their, 
um, attention and getting to the point and asking. So I'm going to ask you here just a tip or a trick. So I mean, interrupting is kind of hard. Is there like a one-liner that you have to be able to interrupt a patient? Pretty simple as I just say, even just like you right now, right? Can I please stop you for a moment? <laughs> I, can I please stop you for a moment? Not that I'm not interested in everything. I, I just really would love to ask you some questions. Is that okay? And they they really take to that and they say, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I've been babbling. Most of them have been will say that. that. I mean, that's really helpful, I think, for others. Um, so, I mean, you, you're not excluding all your physical exam. Have you figured out any tips or tricks on how to be able to do the physical exam over these different mediums? Well, if it's over the phone or virtually by um, video, you know, even over the phone, I think a lot of people are doing phone um, right now, and probably we're going to get to more video um, as the interfaces improve. But um, even so, for example, over the phone, just eat, if I'm uh, triaging or talking to someone who has respiratory complaints, if they're able to complete full sentences and not pause, that makes me feel comfortable that I'm probably not going to have to send them in for a face-to-face visit. So that's one, right? That's you're already getting your respiratory rate when you do that for the most part. And that's where I reassure patients. And sometimes I'll interrupt them if it's a respiratory um, at, with that gentle interruption that I just went over earlier. And and I'll say, you know, the first thing I'll say after the interruption is what's really reassuring to me is you're able to talk to me and not have to pause much to breathe. And that has been reassuring me with, with patients I've been talking to with COVID-19 is what I tell them as well. And yeah, that's, you know, your vitals. Sometimes I'll have them um, do some vitals on the other end, teach them how to do a pulse uh, respiratory rate. If I'm, if it's a parent about a child, I'll have them put the phone up to the child so I can hear the breathing, have the parent look at their chest, at their abdomen and walk them through that. Um, it's really helpful. Some patients actually have pulse ox, pulse oximeters at home. You can order them on blood pressure. Yeah. Yeah. But like in this COVID-19, I think a lot of Providers are worried about missing someone who could be hypoxic and need a face-to-face visit. It's hard to make that decision and then be concerned about exposing them to the emergency room or urgent care. So some some people actually do have pulse oxes and they can get them pretty fast. Pharmacies carry them for like 15, um, 25 is the most I've seen them go for the Ms. Shalane, can you expand just a little bit for me about this this idea of r- the risk of sending a patient to the emergency room right now? Yeah. Yeah. I think it depends on your system, right? So um, I think right now, most states, most communities, um, when we're doing virtual visits, uh, we're trying to evaluate whether they need a face-to-face visit. And I think some for us, we have um, a non-COVID clinic where we can bring patients in, but we still know that that's a risk to them because you can't socially distance very well in a clinic. And so, um, and then the emergency room, they're definitely seeing COVID patients there and in the urgent care, for example. So you're trying to really get as much as you can to feel comfortable keeping them at home. And so, yeah, so that's, you know, using your exam for what they can provide over the phone is, is really helpful. Yeah. I'd love to hear from you about what's different for you in this exam. 
Um, you know, things that you would normally be able to test immediately or see immediately, those are the hard things. There's so much that we do where we don't need a physical exam. You realize that when you're doing this, um, you know, diabetes and high blood pressure if the patient has a cuff and um, even ear infections in older kids, you trust that that's their ear hurts. They've got the classic symptoms, you treat it. That, those, that's not the end of the world. Um, but there's things that are more challenging, like people who are having um, palpitations. Uh, you can't you can't get the EKG immediately, and so then you have to really just problem solve. So, so I mean, you've been doing this 20 years. Um, you've been trained. You you've got habits. Do you feel like this is all new to you? I mean, do you feel like you're learning something new or trying to do something new again? I don't know about new because honestly. With primary care, a huge part of what we do is history. And not it's not even just primary care. A big, big part of how we come up with the diagnosis and the differential diagnosis is based on history. And so having to lean on that more heavily. Um, and, and I don't mind that. I really don't. There's certainly drawbacks, but it's, yeah, it is what it is. So if I understand you correctly, a majority of your visit is focusing on the history then and, and not relying so much on the exam. Is, is that correct? So that's a, the largest percentage of what we're doing when we're on the phone. We have about 10 minutes per, per um, phone visit, although we take longer if we need to. So it's really pinning the patient down, trying to see if they can give you any more concrete information. Do they have a fever? What is their blood pressure? Um, uh, you know, especially with COVID, what's their exposure history? And then thinking about how can I safely treat this? There's a lot of things that we don't necessarily, you know, we, we normally wouldn't have done. Um, and you, you, you look at the risk benefit. It's risky to bring the patient in now. Should I treat kid's ear with an antibiotic because it hurts and they can articulate it and they've got congestion? Answer is yes. I mean, we, we need to come out of our comfort level a little bit and, and decide, really look at risk benefit. Have any tips or tricks or kind of one-liners or questions you've retooled for doing this over telehealth? Uh, I, well, no, I don't know about special questions, just pinpointing patients. Um, lots of folks like to kind of go on and on and they're not doing that as much I've noticed, which is great because they realize we've got a little, we've got a certain amount of time and I'm not saying that cause that's, that's not useful, but, um, kind of guiding them to give me whatever information I can get. The reality too, is that they don't want to come in. The vast majority of people do not want to come in. They don't want to get their labs done. They don't want to get their chest x-ray unless they have to. And if they're sick enough to need that, then they'll do it. So I'm finding that patients' judgment in general is is pretty good and they're working with us really well. Pam, do you have anything you'd like to add for, for our listeners? I think my end result during a patient encounter is not terribly different, but uh, I think it's changed in the way that I ask questions of patients to get the history. And it's, it's definitely increased the number of questions that I ask about their physical symptoms. 
So I just, I gained my information in a little bit of a different way, which was really intimidating when I started because it's so much easier just to do a physical. And, and oftentimes you can come into a room and look at a patient and know if they're toxic appearing or ill appearing or well. And, and so you miss that if you're doing a phone visit or, or an online chat. But the more, the more I do it, the more I realize the patient can really tell you a lot about how ill they are. And sometimes if I'm sitting on the fence trying to decide if someone needs to be seen in urgent care, or go to the emergency room, or if they're good to stay at home, I'll even ask the patient, do you feel like you're sick enough that you need to be seen in the emergency room today? And I think they can even give me a lot of guidance that I would miss if I, because I'm not sitting in an exam room with them. So a lot of us grew up with, um, you know, healthcare being a certain way, you know, growing up as a kid, I can remember going to the pediatrician's office. Every time I've been to the doctor, there's a certain, you know, process to, to how that exam looks. Do you feel like some of these changes have helped you maybe be a little more patient, uh, centered or that your visits now are a little more patient involved? Um, in a way it does. I think I, I usually really enjoy letting patients talk and if they drift off into another subject, I can let them go for a little bit and then bring them back. And so I don't get that as much with chat or the phone visit just because on the phone visit, I'm a little more limited on time and, um, and on chat, you can only type for so long, but it does take out all the interruptions. I don't, I don't get interrupted when I'm doing virtual care with people needing signatures for things and uh, hearing a fax machine go or getting a stat call somewhere. You know, it, it keeps it more appointment focused in that way, I think. So with maybe being a little more appointment oriented or appointment focused with that patient, do you feel like things are changing your exam? Or I mean, are you focusing on different things compared to another? I think it's, um, like I said, it's it's a lot of asking the right questions and, and asking them in different ways. So for example, right now on chat, probably 50 to 75% of my chat visits are about COVID. And the one thing that I need to figure out every time is if they're short of breath and if they are, if it's mild or moderate or severe so that I can triage them appropriately. And if you're having a phone visit, you can get a sense of that just by listening to them speak. And, and if you're on video, you can watch their respirations a little bit. And on chat, I, I just have to ask extra questions. So a lot of times I'll ask people if they're short of breath or if they're wheezing, for example. And a lot of people will say, yes, I'm wheezing. But then I've learned that wheezing to them is, we, is different than wheezing to me. So then I'll have to follow it up and say, is it a whistling noise in your nose? Or is it that you've got drainage in your throat and it feels tight when you breathe? Or is it actually that you can't get air into your lungs? And then they'll give me a little bit more information. I can get a better feel for it. And if they say that they're short of breath, then I can ask, is it just when you're sitting? Is it up walking around? Do you have to be climbing stairs or can you just be walking through your bedroom? And can you say a full sentence and not have to take a break in the middle to take a breath? And they can give me a better feel by answering those questions too. So it takes a little more creativity, I think, to get 
to get the information. So are you trying to break out of your habits and you know, ask questions in a different way then, you know, kind of the challenge here is just breaking out of the habit. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, in medical school, one of the, one of the um, pearls that one of our professors gave us was that 80% of the diagnosis is in the history. And so, you know, if you fall back to just the good old fashioned talking, most of us are very good at that. And especially Those of us like me that are in our 50s and have been practicing for a number of years. And when we started, we didn't send everybody off for an echo or or CAT scans or things like that necessarily. You kind of just go back to the basics. Trust your gut. Karen, you had mentioned earlier that there was a patient who had kind of a neurological issue. You'd kind of hit on it in some points, but do you mind walking through it step by step for us so we can kind of clearly see what that exam was like over virtual health? Yeah, yeah. So when the the patient called, she'd been seeing um, many other natural providers and um, hormone providers, et cetera. And she um, came to see me or came via telehealth to talk about some uh, numb feeling on one side of her body. And um, for her age group, I was thinking MS, MS, MS. And then um, I looked through her history while she was talking and there was a remote history of melanoma. So my <laughs> my hackles uh, raised with that and started asking her some um, more questions and found out, well, there's also a little bit of... Um, weakness. But when she saw her physical therapist, the physical therapist saw no weakness whatsoever. So it was the normal history. And then the physical um, obviously was limited, but it was very telling with our improvisations just right there. From the exam standpoint, I had her uh, move her eyes back and forth like we do and had her stick out her tongue and do some cranial nerve work. Obviously, I could look at her pupils. And then I had her stand up and extend her arms and cl- then she closed her eyes and had a little stumble backwards. And then I had her do the rapid alternating movements of her hands and found some sm- significant asymmetry with that. Those were, those were telling enough that um, I didn't feel that we needed to see a neurologist right away. I thought we should go straight to imaging. Uh, Pam, do you have any examples you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners just so that they can kind of, you know, hear how you went through that visit and what you were thinking about? So I did, you know, I probably have a few minor examples. I don't know that they were extraordinary, but I think um, I think you can diagnose a lot more than you think you can just by talking to a patient. And for example, I had a patient that um, had numbness in her toes that she was worried about. And after asking a lot of questions about exactly where it was and how much area it covered and and getting a lot of the qualities, then I was able to figure out that it wasn't radicular from her back. It was a peripheral neuropathy and we could get the workup started. I could order all the tests. She could come into the lab. and, um, And then it was a quick phone call phone follow-up just to make sure that she got the medicine, she to go over her lab results, things like that. And we didn't even have to bring her in. And that's something that I think three years ago, before I started doing this, had someone told me that I was going to be diagnosing and managing peripheral neuropathy without ever laying my hands on the patient or 
for this woman, I never saw her feet or her legs. She sent me a couple photos. I would have laughed and thought, there's, there's no way, but you can really do a lot. Um, I think even um, I had another patient actually just yesterday who sprained her ankle or twisted her ankle. And so I was trying to figure out if we needed to do an x-ray or not. And so eventually I just pulled up a diagram of the Ottawa criteria, which are criteria to determine if you need an an x-ray and showed her what it was and told her to push on all those areas on her foot that were highlighted on the picture. And then she did that and she said, oh no, there's no tenderness in any of those spots. So then we just figured it out. And again, I didn't have to bring her in or do anything. And because she didn't need an x-ray, it was it was easy and we were good to go. Oh, even things you wouldn't think about treating over the phone before. Um, once you get started, you can do quite a bit. As we talk about maybe one day eventually value-based healthcare, there's a concept that with this idea of focus around outcomes that patients need or potentially could use more follow-up care. Have you guys found that through telehealth or through this medium that you're able to do more follow-up? Ms. Shirlene, uh, do you have any examples or or maybe even Paula? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, right? I'm following up with people who have respiratory complaints. Our system has it built in where we can send to our nurses to check on them. Um, And some of the physicians are just doing it themselves. And, but for patients who have orthopedic issues, for example, I had a patient who fell directly on his knees in his eighties and want to bring him in. And so each day we set up a visit and he ended up just, it didn't get better. It was over three days. And so we got an x-ray and he had a patellar fracture and he was actually evaluated within 30 minutes of the x-ray. So, but it kept him, it's not like it delayed any healing for him. It's just some people do end up having to be seen. Yeah, you, you certainly, because the, the follow-up can be so consecutive. The other thing is um, using email. I've got patients that I know are doing okay at home with you know, respiratory illnesses, potentially COVID, but not ill enough to be tested. And they're emailing me every few days this is what's going on. Just wanted, you know, touch base. And so that's a closeness because I'm still a resource and a support. Plus I don't mind hearing from them emails quick, you know, I'm still okay. I've still got a low grade temp, but I'm not sure to breath. You know, these are all, it's a, it's a way to connect that is being utilized and not abused. Folks are not overdoing it, at least not at this point. Paula, do you feel like you signed up for this as a, as a practitioner? I think when we go into medicine, we all know that uh, there are going to be challenges. None of us could have anticipated this. Maybe we should have. So, uh, but yeah, I do think it's what I signed up for. I signed up to try to help folks when we need ha- when they need help. And this is the epitome of that. What about you, Pam? I do. I think... Um... Yeah, I I really miss doing medicine where I feel like I'm making a big difference. And um, when I was in community health, I felt like I was really reaching more of a population that needed somebody. Whereas working um, or out of out of community health, it's a little bit different. 
I still enjoy it. I still feel like I make a difference, but not as much of a difference for my community. And so COVID, as crazy as it sounds, kind of gives me that chance to feel like I can make a bigger difference again. I just wanted to ask you, you know, what words of encouragement would you leave for others out there? Karen, uh, how about you go first? Your patients are so grateful to see your face. It makes such a difference to them. Um, it's very reassuring as a clinician, too, to see your patients and to see truly how they're doing in their natural habitat. Um, <laughs> it's it's not hard. It's uh, any trepidation you may have will disappear within the first two patients. Um, you've got this. You've trained much harder conditions um, face-to-face. This is... Um, effective, it's safe, and it helps the patients a great deal. Micheline, what about you? I, you know, trust yourself and your intuition. I think it's really important that you can glean more from a virtual visit than you think. And just document a follow-up plan is so important. And yeah, and follow up if you don't feel comfortable or just ask for advice from your partners just follow up with the patient the next day, a few hours later, just so you can get sleep that night and know that you've done, you know, you've done them well and that this won't last forever. (laughs) It can't. (laughs) We'll be back face to face soon and a mix. Yeah. It's a mix for our future. Paula. Yeah. I think that there's value in it. I think that we, as as providers, we all know there's certain patients that you don't want the daily email from. However, when that happens, there it's because they've got a need, and you can figure out how to manage that. Again, it's risk versus benefit, and we're all going to learn techniques for um, guiding folks in that as well. So, but yeah, and, and for a long time, specialists have been doing telemedicine in more remote and rural areas. So there's going to, there's definitely going to be benefits. It's just hard to see it right now. And it's a a different level of exhaustion too, you know, on the phone, on the video all day. And, but, but yeah, we have to do it. It's important. Last but not least, uh, Pam, what about you? Trust the patient, not only trust the patient to give you a good exam and and history, but also to follow up if they're not getting better. So if something's going on, there are a lot of times we can just say, well, you know, wear a wrist brace for three or four days and take some ibuprofen and then let me know what goes on if it doesn't get better. And if you can trust patients to do that, then I think that gives you the wiggle room to be able just to treat it as if it's the most common thing and, um, and then only bring them in if, if it doesn't get better. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Karen, Micheline, Paula, and Pam. Thank you so much for your time. These are extraordinary times as we grapple with this COVID-19 pandemic. We wish you all the best as you grapple with these changes, and we want to encourage you to continue to deliver quality primary health care.